You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. But we are in the Gospel of Luke this morning, so if you have Bibles, you can make your way there. Uh, We're in Luke chapter 1, page 856 uh, is where we'll be in those black hardcover Bibles if you're using uh, one of those. And as Mallory mentioned earlier, we're, we're in our Advent series called Christ of the Carols. Uh, if you're just joining us this morning, if you haven't been here these last few weeks, welcome. Uh, we are looking each week cl- uh, more closely at a particular Christmas carol. We're looking at the biblical truths that that carol comes from, and we're considering together how a deeper understanding of these lyrics that we sometimes sing without thinking about them, uh, a deeper understanding will really grow our awe, our astonishment, Uh, at this marvelous mystery of Jesus' incarnation, what we celebrate together uh, each year during the Advent season. So this week, we are looking at the song, He Who is Mighty. Uh, And for this one, we have to reach way back in time, all the way to the year of our Lord, 2014. So a lot of cultural divide for us to bridge this morning. Uh, If you can imagine, if you can remember a day when people still use Twitter, Uh, When a man named Barack Obama was still the president of the United States, that feels like a lifetime ago. Uh, When all your favorite celebrities had not yet been exposed as horrible people. (laughs) And when Liberty Church met in a windowless room with a trinity of elk heads on the wall, (laughs) this was the year 2014. Uh, We included a a modern hymn in this series uh, on purpose. Uh, We did that because um, so far we've looked at songs that were composed in 1739, 1744, and 1719. And as I hope, if you've been here with us, I hope you've seen that these are incredibly rich hymns, and they're absolutely worthy of being included in our worship even these centuries later. But what I hope is that by the end of this morning, you'll be able to say the same exact thing about a song that was written only five years ago. See, we are inclined to be people of preference instead of substance, And that's true in a lot of areas of our lives. It's especially true with music. And for those of us who have ever spent time in or around the church, it's really true about church music. Some people uh, love the old stuff mainly because it's old, right? Mainly because it's old. Old songs are assumed to be faithful. New songs are assumed to be shallow. But then other people love new stuff mainly because it's new, Old songs are assumed to be stale. New songs are assumed to be fresh. But in reality, old songs can be faithful or shallow, stale or fresh. New songs can be exactly the same. New songs can become stale incredibly quickly, incredibly quickly. The example that came to mind for me this week, uh, in my high school years, I was part of a church in Kansas City. Uh, A song came out in the mid to late 90s called, I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. And that song, within like a month or two of singing it like every week, the the kids in my youth group started to joke like the lyrics should actually be, we've been singing this song forever. (laughs) That's how stale it became that quickly because it was so overused in in that era. So in a series about Christmas carols, I'm inviting us, let's learn to dig deeper than our preferences. Let's learn to appreciate songs for their substance, whether they were written 300 years ago or three years ago. And he who is mighty is full of substance. That's primarily because its biblical basis is another song, a far older one, 
known as the Magnificat, sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus, written down for us in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, It's called the Magnificat because that's the Latin translation of this word that's used in the first line where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Let me start this morning just by reading uh, the lyrics of that song. If you've got one of those uh, worship folders when you came in, inside is an insert, uh, and on one side of that insert are the lyrics to the song, on the other side is today's scripture passage. So these are the words of he who is mighty. Oh, the mercy our God has shown to those who sit in death's shadow. The sun on high pierced the night, born was the cornerstone. Unto us a son is given, Unto us a child is born. He who is mighty has done a great thing, taken on flesh, conquered death's sting, shattered the darkness, and lifted our shame. Holy is his name. Oh, the freedom our Savior won. The yoke of sin has been broken. Once a slave, now by grace, no more condemnation. And then the bridge that comes at the end of some of these verses Now my soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in the God who saves. I will trust his unfailing love. I will sing his praises all my days. Rebecca Elliott, who co-wrote this song with Kate DeGrade, uh, she said the following when asked about the inspiration for He Who is Mighty. She said, Mary has always been a hero of mine, and the Magnificat is one of my favorite details of the Christmas story. In the midst of all the amazing and terrifying things God was doing in her life, Mary's response was to sing praise and declare God's power and faithfulness. Her courage and obedience is convicting and inspiring. So let's look now at Luke chapter 1 and the Magnificat. I invite you to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46 and reading through verse 56. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, her being Elizabeth, her relative, about three months and returned to her home. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us, as we wait for your return, as we celebrate your first coming into the world, help us now see your glory and see your love through the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Luke's gospel opens not focused on Jesus, but instead on John. John's is actually the first birth that's foretold uh, as Luke recounts the story of the the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's actually six months later that the angel Gabriel is then sent to this teenage girl named Mary, 
And he tells her, Mary is told in that moment that she will bear a son, that his name will be Jesus, that he will reign on David's throne, and that his kingdom will have no end. So Mary, did you know? Yep, she knew. She knew. Uh, maybe not all the specifics, maybe not how all of that would play out, but it's always funny to me that there's this entire song written about a question that's already been answered. Mary, did you know? Yes, she did know. And actually, because she knew, she wrote the Magnificat as her response. Mary was a young woman, if we know anything about her in her early years before she actually gave birth to Jesus, she pondered and reflected deeply. She stored up and she treasured things in her heart. And so soon after hearing this news from Gabriel and the additional news that her relative Elizabeth was also expecting a child, she sets out to go and visit Elizabeth. It was a journey of at least 50 miles and maybe closer to 100 between Mary's home in Nazareth and where Elizabeth lived in the hill country of Judah. And it would be on that multi-day journey, most scholars speculate, that Mary's deep reflection burst forth into this song that we now have recorded for us in Luke's Gospel. In the Magnificat, there is much to learn about worship, about praising God. And so with the rest of our time, we're going to consider four things about that. The purpose of praise, the reasons to praise, the language of praise, and then lastly, the posture of praise. So the purpose, the reasons, the language and the posture. First, the purpose, the purpose of praise. This word, magnify, uh, is not really a common word in our vernacular outside at least the realm of, of science. Maybe if you're a scientist, you use that word a lot. Otherwise, you probably don't. But it's a really meaningful word as it pertains to the purpose of worship, the purpose of praise. Why do we worship God? If God already is everything, if God already has everything, if God created us not because of, of some void in his own life or because he needed us for something, but just because he wanted to, then what's the point of our praise? There's both an upward and an outward answer to that question. So upwardly, in our relationship with God, in other words, praise gives to God what is rightfully his. It ascribes, we even sang that word together this morning in, in the song, God of Our Salvation. It ascribes to God the honor that he is due, the glory that he is due. And so by speaking, by, by singing, by proclaiming, by even gathering as God's people to rehearse the gospel, like a magnifying glass, praise brings into greater focus what is already there. And in doing so, it both honors God and it forms us in the truth. Because to magnify something also means to enlarge it. And outwardly, in other words, in our, in our presence, in our relationships with other people in the world, praise enlarges the worth and the honor of God. But it's more like a telescope than a microscope in that sense. That's a helpful analogy that I've come across in a few different places. I hope it's helpful to you. Think about the difference between a microscope and a telescope. A microscope magnifies by taking something that is small and making it appear larger. A telescope magnifies by taking something massive, though far off, and bringing it close. So all greatness and holiness and glory already belong to God. There's nothing small about that. 
And there's no need for us to make God larger than he already is. That's actually impossible to do. But for many people, and you maybe are one of these people, or you for sure know them, God often seems distant, incredibly distant. And so to proclaim God's greatness, to tell it out by recounting specific examples, specific evidences of that, takes what so often seems distant to people and displays it in up-close and personal detail. It takes this massive worth and glory and greatness of God and it brings it close, enlarging it in that sense so that both we and others might see it, might perceive it. And that's what Mary does in the Magnificat. She takes this incredibly personal, this incredibly intimate revelation that she's received from a messenger of God, from the angel Gabriel, and she turns it into public praise eventually. Not sure when it became public, but public praise. She rejoices here not only in what this means for her, which is how she starts the song, but what it means for all who fear God. Through praise, she takes this sometimes vague, oft-forgotten truth that God will save his people, and she brings that very near. So that's the purpose of praise. Second, second the reasons to praise. There are, uh, are many reasons to praise God. Many reasons. But generally speaking, those reasons fall into one of two groups. We praise God for who he is, and we praise God for what he's done. And we see both of those things here in the Magnificat. Who is God? Who is God? As Mary starts her song, he is the Lord. He is king of all the earth. He is also savior, the rescuer of his people. And then in verses 49 and 50, Mary includes these three attributes of God. She says God is mighty, God is holy, and God is merciful. So God's might, uh, his strength, his power, in other words. It means, quite simply, that God is able. God is able. Nothing is impossible for him. In any moment, in any situation, God can exert his might and he can accomplish anything he wants to. God's holiness means he is perfect. He is other. He is distinct from his creation that's been corrupted by our sin, by our rebellion. Though he cares deeply about his creation, though he cares deeply about we, his people, who have felt that corruption of sin, God himself is unblemished. He is untouched by sin and its effects. God can do no wrong. He can do no evil. He can only do what is good and what is perfect. God's mercy then means that he is compassionate and loving. He leverages his might, in other words, to be kind to his people, to be kind to his world. He does not repay us with what our sins deserve, but offers us something infinitely more compassionate than that. Now, these are not the only attributes of God. And each one of these three and all of the others are worth our, our contemplation, our, our meditation, our praise in and of themselves. But something incredible happens when we start to combine various attributes of God, when we start to look at a few of them like these three together. First, when we do that, it will make your brain hurt. How can a completely holy God also be completely merciful? How can he who tolerates no sin, who is unblemished by sin, love we who are sinners? It'll also make your heart hurt. Not just your head, it'll make your heart hurt. 
If God is both merciful and mighty, if he's both of those things, then why does evil still exist in our world? Then why hasn't he yet righted what remains so wrong? Some of the hardest, and some of you know this well, some of the hardest, some of the most doubt-inducing questions of the Christian faith come as a direct result of holding up the various attributes of God side by side. But if you're willing, if you're willing to step into what people of faith have stepped into for generations, if you refuse to be reductionistic by setting one or two of these attributes over and against the others, you will come to find that God defies our comprehension in the most beautiful way possible. What do I mean? I mean, it will become obvious that God is God and that you and I are not. It will remind us how much we need him. It will, it will remind us how worthy he is of our praise. And that though we can understand truthfully and sufficiently, clearly enough to know what we need to know, the end game for us is not to categorize God. I mean, how disincentivizing would it be for our worship if you and I could fully figure God out? I love uh, math problems and spreadsheets, but they have never engaged my whole life and my whole heart the way the prospect of a relationship with the creator of heaven and earth does. They've never even come close. So let God's attributes help you understand who he is, but let them also remind you that you don't understand. And that the point is not to figure God out, but to be in relationship with him. Now, in addition to his attributes, to who God is, we praise God for what he's done. And notice in both Mary's song and then the modern interpretation of he who's, he was mighty, the focus weaves in and out of both God's cosmic, global, universal, I should say, work and his immensely personal work in an individual life. So the first few verses of, that we read in Luke chapter 1 are personal. They're, they're Mary's personal reflection of what God has done for her the favor and the blessing that is hers because God chose her to be the mother of Jesus, the mother of the Messiah. But then in verse 50, she shifts to the broader view. God's mercy is for those who fear him in all generations. God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty but exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but sent the rich away empty. In the original language of this passage, the tense of these verbs make it really difficult to understand and translate. Uh, so is Mary saying God has done these things in the past? Is she saying that this is what God always does in kind of a recurring way? Or is she saying that these are future acts, things that God will do now that Jesus is coming into the world? The verb tense actually leaves open the possibility of all three. Though we don't know exactly which one Mary intended, or maybe she intended all of them, at the end of the day, it is true in all senses. It's true in all senses. God has done these things, and we have lots of evidences of that throughout the Old Testament scriptures. God does these things over and over again, and when Jesus makes all things new, God in Christ will again turn the world upside down. It will bring all of these inversions to the way that our kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world, function. And so in He Who is Mighty, Kate DeGrade and Rebecca Elliott rightfully interpret all of this through what, what the even further revelation that we have from God than Mary had when she wrote her song. 
So Mary heard from Gabriel and wrote this response. But through Jesus, through his life and teachings, more has been revealed. Uh, Through his death and resurrection, more has been revealed. Through the apostles that were entrusted with the gospel and then wrote the New Testament for us, more has been revealed. And so we can rightfully sing a modern interpretation of this hymn in He Who Is Mighty and say things like, Jesus has conquered death's sting. 1 Corinthians 15, he has shattered the darkness. John chapter 1, he has lifted our shame. Hebrews chapter 12. Here's what I'd invite you to see this morning. The God who is mighty and holy and merciful and who turns the world on its head. This God does great things, not just in general, but for you and for me. Verse 49, he who is mighty has done great things for me, for me. Some of us are prone to miss the cosmic, to be so consumed with our own lives and our own circumstances in any given moment that we forget the attributes of God. We forget the scope of his work in the world. We're so self-consumed that we can't see how much bigger God and his purposes are in the world than us. At the same time, some of us are prone to miss the personal, to be so focused on the bigness that, that we forget that God loves you, not just in general, but you, that he came into the world for you. So hold the cosmic and personal together. Even better, recognize how you personally, through faith in the finished work of Jesus, are swept up into the great and mighty things that God has done and is doing and will do. Third, the language of praise. And I promise I'll be a little shorter on these last couple points. The language of praise. When Mary composes this song, when she opens up her heart in response to this message from Gabriel, what flows out from her heart is scripture. It's scripture. Uh, He who is mighty is a paraphrase of scripture, right? It's a paraphrase of the Magnificat. But the Magnificat itself, in so many ways, is Mary's Holy Spirit-inspired reflection and paraphrase of God's word in the Old Testament. One scholar counts 12 Old Testament uh, references, passages referenced here, quoted in the Magnificat. In addition to that, Mary's entire song seems to be modeled on another song in the Old Testament sung by a woman named Hannah, who was the mother of the prophet Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2 records Hannah's song. If you put those two songs side by side, you'll notice a lot of parallels between the two of them. And it's important for us to pick up on this because when we praise God, when our soul magnifies the Lord and rejoices in the God of our salvation, we do that best using words that God has already given us. The Bible, God's revealed word to his people, is the language of praise. It's the language of all of worship, really. And when we think about that, we can choose to see that as constraining or incredibly freeing. If it feels constraining to you, remember, though we know sufficiently and clearly, we do not fully understand God. And so often throughout history, it's when we try to fill in the blanks with our own thoughts that we end up on the wrong road, that we invent all kinds of lies and believe lies, that we imagine God to be like ourselves or lower rather than exalted and holy like he is. Moreover, does anything about the Magnificat feel, con- feel constrained to you? 
When you hear Mary's song, does she feel constrained when she sings this? Does she not instead sound free? She sees all of these dots connecting the promises of God, all these little glimpses in the Old Testament of God's saving purposes now converging and herself at the center of it. And so practically, this is why we and the people of God read the Bible. It's one of the primary reasons, as Deborah did such a great job of sharing this morning, why we have Bible studies, why we are aiming to read through the Bible together in the year 2020. It builds knowledge, absolutely, but it's so much more than that. It's the language of praise. It's the language of worship. And reading the Bible will form you in this language. It will make you increasingly fluent in a language that's a foreign language to us until we read it. And we do that so that whether we are rejoicing like Mary or whether we are suffering like Jesus on the cross, when these massive things happen to us in our lives and we lose the ability to be measured and thought out and controlled in our words, and our heart, in other words, is just ripped open, that what will pour out in those moments are not the, are not the lies that we invent and that we're prone to believe, not the warped misconceptions that we invent, but will be the very word of God that pours out of us in those moments. It's the language of praise. Fourth and finally, the posture, the posture of praise. As she praises God, two things are true of Mary. She is immensely favored and she is incredibly humble. Immensely favored and incredibly humble. And verse 48 puts those together really succinctly, but, but actually start with the end of verse 47. She says there at the end of verse 47, she calls God her Savior. My soul rejoices in God my Savior. Mary needs a Savior too. She's carrying God the Son, incredible as that is, but she does not perceive herself to be any kind of peer with God. As J.C. Ryle once put it, Mary is speaking as one who has been taught by God's grace to feel her own sins and who far from being able to save others requires a Savior for her own soul. So this is actually a strong argument from Mary's own mouth against worshiping Mary. But even more than that, it displays her posture of humility. God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. In other words, she's saying, who am I to be given this privilege? Who am I? I'm a poor, obscure nobody. Why should I be used by God in such an incredible way? Because notice, she does recognize the privilege and the favor that is hers. The very next line she says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And we do, don't we? Probably not enough in most Protestant circles. Though we clearly should not worship Mary. As Elizabeth put it in the passage just prior to this one, Blessed among women is Mary. Blessed among women is Mary. She used to be held in honor. She's like the saints in Hebrews chapter 11 of whom the world is not worthy. But even in a more unique way because only Mary was the human means of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. You think about the, the full humanity of Jesus. That required Mary. She's unique in that way. She's to be held in esteem and honor by the people of God. And if that isn't a place of favor and privilege, then I don't think there is such a thing. And yet, Mary takes that place, that, that place of blessedness, and she turns it not into prestige or position 
or a platform or self-righteousness. She turns it into humble praise. Now, you and I are not Mary. She has a unique role in the history of humanity. But with different specifics, you and I, too, can rightfully sing, He who is mighty has done great things for me. We can each sing that. Mary here displays the humbly favored posture of praise, of faithful praise. And think about this. Christians are the most favored, blessed people in the world. Even if it doesn't feel like that, we are objectively the most favored and blessed people in the world. We should therefore be the most humble. We who once were alienated and hostile in mind to God have, through the incarnation and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, now become God's beloved children, have become part of God's own family, part of his ongoing saving work in the world. There is no place of favor that compares to that. But far be it from us to ever use that position of blessedness and favor in an arrogant way, in a self-righteous way, with any kind of superiority complex or disdain for people who are at present not walking with Jesus or rejecting him. Like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and tax collector, to carry ourselves in that way would call into question the sincerity of our very faith. God is the one, as we read in Mary's song, who scatters the proud, who brings down those who consider themselves mighty. He is the one who exalts the humble. The humble. So like Mary, in our praise, let's recognize the the complete unworthiness in and of ourselves. Let's be anchored in humility even as we enjoy this unimaginable favor of being called God's beloved children. As you heard from Timmy, as you heard from Mallory earlier, the fourth candle represents God's love. And it represents his charge to us to be people of love to others in the world. And so I want to close with this. One of the best ways that you and I can love others is by magnifying God. By magnifying God. By rejoicing in God your Savior. And that's not at all to excuse us from rolling up our sleeves in sacrificial service and working hard, not at all. But from your place of humble favor, be that telescope that brings the greatness of God near. Recognize that the deepest longing of every human heart is to know and to be known by God. But his greatness and his mercy and his might and his holiness so often feel distant to your friends and to your family members, and to your co-workers and neighbors, and even to the people you sit in this room with this morning. Your worship, your, your praise, your telling it out, has the ability to, in an experiential way, bring the greatness of God near. And not only will it focus your own heart on him and what he's done, it will help bring that into focus in the lives of others. So because God's attributes and work give you every reason to praise because he's already given us the language of praise and because we are his humbly favored people in the world. Love God enough. Love love those that God has placed in your life enough, I should say, to tell them about him, to help them see his greatness. And in this season and always, like Mary, may our souls magnify the Lord. May our spirits rejoice and the God of our salvation. Amen. Let me pray for us. You are holy. 
God of majesty. And not only blessed is Mary, but blessed is Jesus Christ, your son, our Lord. You sent him into this world to satisfy the longings of your people for a savior, to bring freedom to the captives of sin, which is us, apart from your grace, and to establish justice for the oppressed. He came among us as one of us, taking the lot of the poor, sharing human suffering. And so, Father, we rejoice this morning that in his death and rising again, you set before us the sure promise of new life, the certain hope of a heavenly home where we will sit at table with Christ, our host. And as we prepare to come now to that table, we rejoice that that work has been accomplished on our behalf, and we long for the day, Jesus, that you will come again. We pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.